Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. He was not very tall, just five foot four, and he did not look like your typical football player. But when he strapped on his helmet, look out. His speed and agility is what made him special with the rock in his hand. You just couldn't catch him. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to take a look back at his terrific career. Stay tuned as we talk the bronze bullet, Buddy Young. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 94, Buddy Young. I hope everyone out there is staying safe and is enjoying the holiday season as best they can. You know, reading, searching for, and researching subject matter for Sports Forgotten Heroes helps to uncover great players of the past whom, obviously, time is forgotten. Sometimes, though, it's difficult to find enough information to move forward with a podcast about one person. So there have been a few times where I have covered more than one forgotten hero in a single podcast. Other times, I just can't find someone who knows enough about a forgotten hero to speak about the person with any sort of authority. For this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, I put out a feeler to see if anyone would respond or could recommend someone to come on the show and talk about Buddy. Well, lucky for us, my good friends at the Professional Football Researchers Association pulled through, and today, my guest will be Andy Piasek. When Andy and I connected, he was concerned that he wouldn't have enough information to talk about Buddy for any sort of extended period of time. I told Andy not to worry. Sure enough, we could have talked about Buddy for much longer than we did. You see, Buddy had a terrific college career at Illinois. He served time in the Army, went back to Illinois where he picked up right where he left off, leading the Illini to a Rose Bowl win in 1947. He was also named co-player of the game, went on to star in the AAFC, that's the All-America Football Conference, and he ended his career, I think, very prematurely with the then Baltimore Colts at the age of 29. Buddy was also a star in track, winning 
the National Collegiate Championships in the 100 and 220-yard dashes. He was an AAU champion in the 100-meter and tied the world record in the 45 and 60-yard dashes. The first time he ever touched a football for Illinois, he scored on a 64-yard run. And on his second carry, he scored on a 30-yard run. Yes, Buddy was special. No doubt about it. But he also played just before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier for the Brooklyn Dodgers and Major League Baseball, which is part of the reason why Buddy went to the AAFC instead of the NFL, and we will get into a lot of that with Andy. Before we do, however, I have a request. I would love to hear from you. Please, let me know how you like the show. What episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes has been your favorite? Who you would like me to do a show about? Ask a question. Make a suggestion. And you can do that by visiting sportsfh.com. That's sportsfh.com. Every page has a comment section. Just fill it out and hit send. Again, that's sportsfh.com. Also, if you can, please give me a follow on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram or look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook. As always, I thank you for your support and I thank you for listening. Now, let's turn our attention to the terrific career of Buddy Young. And here to discuss Buddy with us is my guest, Andy Piazza. Andy, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Warren. Appreciate it. Hey, let's start with this. I am not quite sure that I have ever read so many different articles with so many people in each article claiming that one particular player is by far the fastest man they have ever seen in professional football. But when it comes to Buddy Young, that's exactly what everyone who played with him, played against him, coached him, coached against him, that's what they all said. Just how fast was Buddy Young? Yes, what you said is exactly true, and it's the same reaction that I had because I even knew a little uh, a fair amount about Buddy Young, but was surprised by the number of coaches and players, and we're talking about esteemed people, um, um, you know, the elite of the game. The one thing that I've seen are sometimes uh, from when he was a collegiate sprinter, he ran as fast as nine seven in the hundred. And he ran as fast as six one in the sixty yards. Wow! But keep in mind, he did this uh, not long after his eighteenth birthday. So I think a very good uh, educated guess would be that he was faster than that in at least say the next five or more years mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. followed as he really matured into a man. Mm-hmm. Um, and people raved about his speed and. One of the things I was said regularly at the time and in interviews that I've done with contemporaries of his 
is that he was the fastest man in football for a period of years in the late 40s and on into the early 50s. Okay, so now that we have established how fast he was and how fast everybody says he was, let's go back for a second. Who was Buddy Young and just how special a talent was he? Claude Young was born in Chicago in 1926, and he showed excellent athletic ability beginning as a young boy. He was uh, especially known even at that young age among other boys in his neighborhood, including others who were older than he was as being about the fastest kid in the neighborhood. And he um, ended up eventually at the high school level, the collegiate level, being a star in both football and track, and then went on to have a nine-year pro football career. One thing that's interesting is that Young was also quite small. Mm-hmm. Um, contemporaries have said that he, for guys his age, he was generally the smallest in his grade each year. He grew to be five foot four as a man and, and no taller. So he was both simultaneously known as the fastest guy around, and probably I don't haven't seen anything official about this, but maybe the smallest man ever to play pro football. It's possible you can imagine that probably back in the very early years, like in the 1920s, there may have been someone when players and individuals as a whole were not as big. Mm-hmm. But um, five foot four is really pretty small, uh, especially for someone to be able to go on and play pro football for that long. Yeah, no doubt. And and th- Well, and one thing that happened that was um, – you know, kind of typical, I would think, um, was that the first high school that he went to in Chicago, when he went to try out for football, the football coach told him that he wasn't even going to let him try out because he was too small. Hmm. So he immediately withdrew and transferred to a different school. I think it's Wendell Phillips High School in Chicago. And he went on to be one of the best players in the area, was inundated with uh, scholarship offers from Schools primarily from the upper Midwest, Big Ten schools, Marquette University, et cetera. And he ended up going to the University of Illinois, which he rolled in, I believe, in January of 1944. And like you said, you know, he wasn't exactly tall. He might have actually been, like you said, the shortest man in the, you know, to ever play in the NFL. Now, like me, Andy, you're a football historian. You're a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association. You know a lot about the game. It's just in, you know, you love the game just like I do. Talk about being five foot four and playing professional football. What could the advantages to such a height be? And what about the disadvantages if you were to talk about? such a thing? Well, obviously, the thing that really um, was the main advantage that he had was his tremendous speed. But we shouldn't underestimate the fact he was five foot four. He was also a rock-solid 170, 175 pounds. Wow. I've seen various numbers about that. Um, and so you can imagine a guy that size probably without a single ounce of fat on him or just picture uh, boxers in the lower weight categories. I mean, they sure may be short of stature, but they're certainly not somebody that you want to accidentally bump into and 
say something <laughs> stupid to. Yeah. So I think that's the way we picture, you know, Buddy Young. And um, now we can get into this a little more when we delve into his um, pro career. What I've seen on film is that he was primarily used running to the outside and as a receiver, as well as a kick and punt returner. Uh, made perfect sense, and probably both for his sake and for the uh, team that he was playing on, he did very, probably very little running inside the tackles. Mm-hmm. So, but if you can picture the old days of football before the hash marks got moved dramatically in, you would always have a wide side of the field. So if you're sending the fastest guy in the league out on a sweep to that far side of the field, uh, it's uh, a tremendously dangerous play where, you know, you can literally break a long run at any moment. And Mm -hmm. he often did do that. And that's reflected in the very high average yard uh, per carry totals that he posted in some of his best seasons. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and also I remember, um, you know, watching guys, you know, it's not ancient times, but guys like Joe Morris, who was a running back for the New York Giants, he was all of a, you know, five foot seven. And I think the defense would sometimes have trouble picking him up because he was so small behind the offensive line. So that certainly has to work towards the advantage of a player who has talent a guy like a Buddy Young. Absolutely, yes. Uh, Joe Morris was a tremendous player, and I think Young kind of probably, that was what you said is exactly true of Buddy Young as well. The other thing, too, is that um, there's not much to hold on to or hit mm. uh, with a guy who's five foot four and not necessarily widely built either. So even just kind of trying to zero in on the guy to make a tackle was not that easy because, you know, he really was kind of a will of will of the wisp there one minute and then gone. And if he broke through a, a arm tackle or whatever and got to the outside, it was really bad news for the defense. Mm. Yeah. I'd imagine pretty difficult to tackle someone that small um, and that built. Well, now I will say though, that, what we see, and I would say that probably the information about why this was the case has long been lost to history, but it is true that Warren, that um, Buddy Young did not really get that many carries on a per-game basis. Mm-hmm. I think he was looked at more as a specialist who, when you set up a defense um, right at the certain moment when you would maybe need to try to break a long run, then they would send him out on a sweep, as I mentioned earlier, or out in on a pass pattern. Partly, we'll get into a little bit about the New York Yankees, which was the first pro team that he played. They were an outstanding team when he joined them in 1947. Mm-hmm. They had been runner-up in the All-America Football Conference the year before, and they would go on to be the runner-up to the Cleveland Browns in 1947, which was his rookie year again for the second year in a row. And they had an established um, back by the name of Speck Sanders, who was one of the elite running backs of that era and who 
I guess you would say he was the primary back, and he was a bigger guy. He was called a tailback. He was not a fullback. But they were still playing the single wing, and so he was both the combination passer and runner. Mm. And he was uh, just a dynamic player who was actually the most valuable player of the All-America Football Conference in 1947, which was Young's first year. So, you know, in a different setting, on a different team that maybe didn't have a back as good as Spec Sanders or on a team that wasn't as good or just didn't have overall talent, it's very possible that Young might have been a feature back. Mm -hmm. But I think reading between the lines a little bit, if you have a guy who you really just, would be difficult to have him run very often. And I don't say he never did it. He certainly ran between the tackles uh, on occasions. But if you have a guy who just maybe cannot take the kind of beating that a guy, say like Marion Motley. Marion Motley was 6'2 and 232, Hmm. playing for the Browns, an exact contemporary of Buddy Young. And even guys who weren't as big as Marion Motley, like Joe Perry or Steve Van Buren, who are also um, feature backs, uh, 200, 205 pounds. You know, these guys are carrying the ball 15, 18 times a game. Um, Buddy Young, I really am just, again, reading between the lines here. I don't think it would have been a wise use of him just for his own personal health to use him that way and also... um, probably not as effective team-wise, especially when you had a guy like Spec Sanders. And then a few years later, uh, a halfway decent halfback by the name of Sharon Howard joined the Yankees. And then after he moved to a separate franchise, which ironically enough was known as the New York Yanks, <laughs> but different from the New York Yankees, <clears throat> you know, they had four really good backs. It was... Buddy Young, George Talaferro, Sherman Howard, and a guy named Zoli Toth at football at fullback. So if you're picturing a three or a four man backfield with talent of that level, there would it didn't really make any sense to make Buddy Young a feature back. Mm-hmm. He could be sort of a occasional weapon that would you would use. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, running sweeps running swing passes out of the backfield, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And he was a heck of a weapon. You know, his career got off to a heck of a start. He had, like you just said earlier, uh, you know, several offers to play college ball. Ultimately, he decided to stay close to home and play for the University of Illinois. What did he mean to that program? Well, he had an incredible impact. As I said, he started school in he was able to graduate from high school and start college in uh, the January term. And this is 1944 at the height of the Second World War. So there had been exceptions made so that freshmen were eligible to play varsity football, which we accept now for the last number of decades. But up until I guess it was the 1970s, in normal times, freshmen did, did not play varsity football. So he came as an 18-year-old, and before we even get to his football season that year, that spring is when he uh, achieved all these great uh, track uh, records that I mentioned. Mm. He was uh, 
NCAA titleist in both the 100 and 200 yard sprints. That means number one collegiate in the whole country. And they would do exactly what they've done ever since and before, where they would have college athletes and team track teams come to a, in this case, it was Marquette University for a, you know, multi-day event where it would be individuals racing in their specialties or doing the shot put or the javelin or whatever. And then you'd have ways of accumulating scores so that there would be team uh, victors as well. Mm -hmm. And both the University of Illinois track team finished number one that spring of 44. And Buddy Young, as an individual, won the 100 and the 200. And so... You know, right away, as an 18-year-old, just a couple months into college, he established himself in track and field. And then come the fall of 1944, he sets or ties some Big Ten records. He equals a a Illini touchdown record set by none other than the immortal Red Grange. Mm -hmm. And he leads the Illini to first place in the Big Ten and an invitation to the uh, well, no, I'm sorry. I'm getting ahead of myself a little okay. bit. That comes in 1946. In 44, they had a good team, and he had a good season. But his better known season for Illinois comes in 1946, um, after he did one year or so in the Navy, in which he also did some uh, outstanding uh, work on the gridiron. Yeah, we'll so get to that. Yeah, there. yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But still here at Illinois, at the University of Illinois, his first game, he scored on a sixty-four-yard run the first time he ever touched the ball. His second carry, he ran for a thirty-yard touchdown. Just how good was was he? for Illinois. Like you said, he he tied Red Grange's record with, you know, 10 touchdowns for the season. I mean, he came in and made an immediate impact. And like you said, he was a freshman and freshman until then really never played unless there was some super special circumstance. Yeah, uh, you summed it up perfectly by what you said about what he did in his very first game. He went on to uh, average almost 20 yards a game, uh, 20 yards a carry for that game, 139 total yards. And um, the Illini that year were not all that strong, but by what would end up being his second year of college football in 1946, they became the best uh, team in the Big Ten, complete with an invitation to the Rose Bowl and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um and that was really his big season, not to downplay, you know, what he did in that game that you mentioned and throughout that 1944 season. Um, and it, it was incredible, you know, when we think back about it, because no sooner did the football season end in 1944 than he got drafted into the Navy in January of 1945. Right. And his stint in the Navy lasted into 1946 long enough so he was not able to get back to campus to compete in track and field that spring of 46. But he came back uh, better than ever in football in 46 
um, ended up being the co-MVP of the Rose Bowl, which was a decisive win for Illinois over UCLA, even mm-hmm. though Illinois went in as a decided underdog. And, um, yeah, just uh, so technically that was his what would have been his sophomore season. Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, all Big Ten did not get – much or any mention as far as the All-American teams, and you can only speculate that some of that A might have been because he was only a sophomore, and voters sometimes tend to wait until people are upperclassmen because they want to give the awards more to seniors. Also, he was completing with uh, legendary players like Blanchard and Davis from Army, sure, among others. Yeah, and... Um, but he was uh, first team all Big Ten, and you know, just a very, very impressive season. I would mm-hmm. say also, you know, knowing the time period that we're talking about and knowing the kinds of things that people like Jackie Robinson went through, we can speculate that there's a good chance that there were people who didn't vote for him for all Americans simply because he was black. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. So. You know, uh, Andy, I recently did a podcast on war football. It concentrated on the game during World War One, When Buddy was in college, as you just uh, uh, talked about, he ended up, you know, having to serve time in the military. And another type of war football was played. And this time it was because of World War Two. Many colleges had to shutter their programs again, and star college players were drafted and wound up playing for military service teams. The pro game was affected by this as well. Um, so, so first, um, you said that Buddy did play for a naval team. Is there anything you could tell us about that, his time playing in the military? Yeah, I guess he made couple, uh, several stops, but eventually ended up in what was called the Fleet City Base in Southern California. And like a lot of athletes, plus the war was winding down. Now we're talking about draft. he was drafted in January of 45, basic training or whatever, and then you get into the summer and the war is ending. Um, and it was considered big for morale to have athletic teams, uh, baseball, football, especially. And he was a key part of the fleet city team. That was a powerhouse good enough to be playing for, I guess the unofficial, or maybe it was official military championship in December of 1945. And, you know, again, had another, spectacular game. And I think it's important to keep in mind, you mentioned that collegians were being drafted, outstanding high school players, if they were already 18, were being drafted. And many, many players from the National Football League were in the military. And those who weren't you know, sent overseas often ended up on these base teams. So this Fleet City team and the team that they played against for the championship were packed with really talented players, both mm-hmm. from, you know, big time college programs, as well as guys from the pros. And it was young who had, you know, by far the biggest game. Another thing to keep in mind is that this 
was played in the Los Angeles Coliseum, and it was uh, 65,000 people in attendance based on the uh, research I was able to do. So it was a big deal. It wasn't just like, you know, a bunch of guys going out to the park and um, chalking up a stretch of grass and playing a game in front of a couple hundred people. This was uh, the L.A. Coliseum with a huge crowd. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, here's Buddy Young, who returned two kickoffs for touchdowns, 94 and 88 yards, wow. and also scored a third touchdown on a 30-yard run from scrimmage uh, as Fleet City won decisively in this uh, military championship game. And this is um, an occasion where, you know, you have celebrities like Bob Hope, you had other, uh, all kinds of coaches and people from the movie industry who were there or who lit, who listened to the game on radio. And again, we go back to the quotes about how great he was. And Bob Hope is one of the people who talked about never having seen a football player like Buddy Young mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. um, other coaches and players said same similar things. Mm-hmm. Now, like I said, I had just done a podcast about war football, uh, you know, football during the period of World War One. How was the NFL and professional football as a whole affected by World War Two? Is there anything you could tell us about that? How? Perhaps the game changed a little, how maybe some teams had to combine to to field a team. What can you tell us about the NFL during that period? Is there anything you could share with us? Well, yeah, it was a very difficult stretch. You know, there were travel uh, restrictions. Players were being taken and drafted into the service. And you uh, attendance was impacted negatively. What you mentioned is true. Several teams combined at different, uh, most famous, I guess, is the Steelers and Cardinals combining for one year, but that happened in another year, too. And I think it was the Cleveland Rams who actually suspended play for at least one year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, clearly you would conclude that the quality of the game was not that great with so many of the so many players gone and not just the players who were already actually in the NFL but as we said earlier the normal graduating classes coming out of college that would replenish people who were gone they were also going into the service too mm-hmm. so but like with baseball and I don't think there was an official edict from Franklin Roosevelt there was with baseball where he said, you know, it's very important to morale to go on rather than say suspend the NFL for a couple of years. The idea was the same. Um, it, it added a, a, a degree of normalcy and it obviously also gave say factory workers working in a war plant, something to do on a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday night. And so even though it was a difficult time, they did persevere and come out of it at the end uh, in better shape than they had been probably beforehand. Mm-hmm. What about the service teams, a team you know, like, like uh, uh, the fleet team that Buddy played on? How good were they, you know, the top teams, how good were they compared to maybe some of the uh, professional teams? Would they have been able to stack up against them on the field or were, were the professional teams still that much better? 
It would seem that at that time period, probably, yes, probably they would have stacked up well. You would think, um, I don't have the exact roster or numbers in front of me as to how many pro players were on the Fleet City team, but if you factor in that there were at least a half a dozen and probably more, including some of the quality of Buddy Young, and that the NFL teams were depleted of some of the very same players, probably it would have been very competitive games. Um, The one case that I know more about than Fleet City because of research and writing I've done about Paul Brown and the Cleveland Browns, Paul Brown was based at the Great Lakes Naval Center in Illinois, not Mm -hmm. far from Chicago. Mm -hmm. And he had been a highly successful coach up to that time, including leading Ohio State to a national championship just a few years before. And he would go on, obviously, to gain greater fame as uh, one of the greatest coaches of all time based on his tremendous accomplishments with the Browns in the 1940s and 1950s. But what you see when you look at what he was doing at Great Lakes, first of all, there were a number of uh, excellent players just on his team. And also the other military teams that the Great Lakes team was playing against he ended up recruiting people from those teams to join the Browns when the Browns played their first season in 1946. Interesting. Yeah, so he signed people who played for him, and he signed players who who played against his team, who many of whom became sort of the nucleus of those great Cleveland teams. Hmm. So, yeah, that gives you an idea of, um, you know, they're really being pretty high quality both in terms of playing talent and coaches of the you know caliber of Paul Brown I mean it would be sort of like I don't know Nick Saban being the head coach of your military team that's not too bad no not at all not at all um of course we're following Buddy Young and his career from college through the pros and we're basically doing this in a chronological order um, after the service, and we touched upon this, he returned to the Illini, um, and he really picked up right where he left off. And a lot of that, I guess, had to do with the fact that he was playing football in the military. Had he really not had such an opportunity, he might not have been able to play as effectively for the University of Illinois right away like he did. Um, and like you said, he helped Illinois to a Rose Bowl win over against a favored UCLA team. The Illini won that game 45-14. to 14, And Buddy was named co-player of the game. Again, something right. that you had talked about. Right. Um, it's sort of a... And the guy who was the other co-MVP ended up having a decent uh, pro career as well, also as a running back. And who was that? His name was Julie Rykovich. Mm-hmm. And he, like Buddy Young, ended up going into the All-America Conference, playing primarily with uh, the Buffalo Bills, mm-hmm. not to be confused with the later version that we know today. Correct, yeah. But, um, yeah, Rykovich was quite a player, and there were other outstanding players like Alex Agassi on the Illini team as well. He is one of the people who ended up being a mainstay of the Cleveland dynasty mm-hmm. uh, in the late 40s and early 50s. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was a very competitive uh, situation. And we were also left to wonder about the fact that 
Now, Young, okay, so he plays 1944, he plays in the military in 1945, and then he plays for Illinois in 1946 with this great season that both he and the Illini had. So basically, at that point, he still has two years of college eligibility remaining. Mm -hmm. But um, he ended up choosing to go pro, which was perfectly you know, legitimate at that time. There was no stipulation about one's class having had to graduate. Mm-hmm. He um, had gotten overtures from a number of pro teams, and the All-America Football Conference, which we've mentioned a couple of times, came into being during the war and then played their first season in the fall of 1946. And the New York Yankees franchise in that league is the one that was able to secure Buddy Young services for the 1947 season. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, what ended up being his outstanding rookie year. Right. What I wanted to ask you, though, before we get into all of that, was we've talked about how fast he was, but there has to be more than just speed. Is there anything else that you could tell us about his game? What made him such a special player? I mean, there's more to just being able to run with the football and avoid being tackled. What else is it about Buddy Young that made him such a special player, if, if there's anything else you could tell us about him? Well, the one, one thing that we've mentioned already is that uh, he was really a rock-solid guy in terms of his build and his strength. So while you might not think of a... 170-pound guy, even in that era of pro football, being strong. The fact that he was just five foot four meant that you know he was built, maybe like you could use the uh, metaphor of a fire hydrant. Um, he had incredible elusiveness. You know, we don't have the kind of footage of him from that era that we have of players who've played in more recent decades. But you see him, you know, being able to. Um, get to the outside by avoiding tacklers. And then if you ever got into the open field, you know, there just literally was nobody on the field who could catch him. Mm -hmm. So I think it was a combination of speed, elusiveness, being incredibly strong for his size. And then certainly, as you said, being able to play big 10 football as an 18 year old freshman, and then being able to play, on the best military team in the country as a 19 year old in 1945, and then being able to play on the big 10 and Rose bowl winning team as a 20 year old in 1946. Clearly he also during that time de- developed incredible football smarts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you learn all kinds of things. You learn when to go down, you know, which doesn't sound like such a big deal, but, certainly even maybe more so for a guy his size, it's important to know when to maybe try to stop fighting for yardage mm-hmm. uh, so that you're not having two or three extra guys nail you. Right. And but other, good... any, any number of other, any other of number of other things that we attribute to smart football players, he, he had, you know, pretty much all of that. Yeah. And he had a pretty good set of hands too. I mean, it's not like uh, he couldn't catch the ball and take off with it either. You know, and you had also talked about, uh, you know, how good he was as a track star and, 
you know, just to wrap up his college career, well, almost wrap up his college career, you know, he won uh, championships in the 100 and the 220. He tied the world record for the 45 and the and the 60-yard dash. He won the AAU's 100. He was the AAU's 100-meter champion. Um, so he was a special talent when it came to track. But he played football. And back in the day, a team of college all-stars would take on the NFL champions just before the season started. And in 1947, the college all-stars took on the Chicago Bears. And this was a game that was played for, you know, a good 30 or 40 years thereabouts. They, they don't play it anymore, obviously. The college all-stars won that day 16 to nothing in front of a crowd of over 100,000 people at Soldier Field. Buddy Young had a pretty big day. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, before we dive into the specifics, it's important to know for younger listeners especially, the college all-star game was really a big deal. It was started in the 1930s. It lasted. The last game was in 1976. And for a lot of people, it was even the highlight of the football season. Hmm. What you had each year was the defending NFL champions from the previous year playing against a collection of mostly seniors or players like Buddy who had declared that they were finished with college football and moving on to the pros. So, and at that time, the gulf, I would say, between pro football and college football was not as great as it became later or as it is today. Mm -hmm. So for the first 15 or so years of the college all-star game, the collegians actually stood up pretty well. They didn't win half the games. It was less than half. And a couple of the games ended in ties. But they did win five or six times during those first 15 years. And then afterwards, as you got into the late 50s up and for the last 20 years of the game, they became increasingly less competitive. I think over the last, I don't know what the exact number is, but the last 15 or 20 so games, the Collegians only won once. And on a number of occasions, you had one-sided games which you did not really have uh, in the first 15 or so years. But as far as the specific game played uh, in August of 47, there's 105,840 people at Soldier Field, which, as far as I can determine, was the second largest football crowd ever, pro or college, up to that time. Wow. Topped only by a USC-Notre Dame game that was also played at Soldier Field sometime in the 1920s. You know, and that's the era of Rockney and George Kipp and all those guys, mm -hmm. the Four Horsemen. So, mm -hmm. you know, th this is the scale that we're talking about. Um, also, it's important to know that the Bears, not only were they the defending champions from 1946, but they had won four NFL championships just in the previous seven years. So this is their monsters of the midway heyday, really. Yeah, they were a good uh, you team. Have, you would play, right? The college all-stars were playing the champions of the NFL almost every time. Not every time, but most of the time. Yeah, so, you know, you're talking about legends like the head coach, which was George Hallis, and players like Sid Luckman and Bulldog Turner, who were really at the peak of their 
games. And so here comes Buddy Young, and uh, on the first, very first possession of the game, when the All Stars drove down and scored to take a six nothing lead, he uh, is takes a short pass and goes 31 yards, and then he breaks off a 19-yard run. Somebody else ended up scoring the touchdown. I don't have it right in front of me. But on whatever it was, a 70-yard drive, Buddy Young accounted for 50 of the yards. And then later on this, in the first quarter, he takes another short pass. And, you know, again, we can picture this fast, shifty guy mm-hmm. taking a short pass that for a lot of other players might have been an eight or ten yard gain, and he turned it into a forty-one yard uh, hmm. reception, and that led directly to another touchdown. So before the first quarter was over, the All Stars were ahead thirteen to nothing, going on as you said to ultimately win the game sixteen to nothing, and on the basis of those contributions that he made to those two touchdown drives. Lo and behold, Buddy Young was named the most valuable player of the game. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, pretty much everywhere this guy goes, he's like uh, winning awards as the best or one of the best <laughs> or co-MVP or whatever you have. Well, you know, that brings up an interesting question. It's usually a question that I that I hold off to the end of each episode, or sometimes I even start off an episode with it, but let's address it here. Why do you think Buddy Young is not better remembered than he is? It's not a name that you hear mentioned all that often. And, um, you know, he had a pretty darn good career. I think there's a combination of reasons. First of all, pro football and the sports information world as a whole have not done as good a job at preserving or excavating the history of pro football the way that baseball has. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly, partly that's because baseball was far and away the most popular sport well into the 60s, and certainly at the time that Buddy Young was playing. Pro football was not even second. I would say certainly college football was uh, more popular and more attendance and casual fans paid much more atten- attention to college football than they did to pro football. And they might even have other sports like boxing that would be sure, sort of sure. ahead of... Uh, Back yeah, in the so, that, was that, that was in the heyday. Yeah, so that was part of it. Another part of it is that he did play his first three years in a league that no longer exists and which, unfortunately, for a number of reasons, is not well-remembered or Mm -hmm. Mm well-respected. And I think the other thing that's hard to avoid is, based on everything that we said, his pro career really doesn't turn out maybe to be uh, as exalted as what he had done in the years before Mm -hmm. his pro career. Mm -hmm. It turns out that his very first year, 1947, was his best season. Sure. He did end up having some injuries in 1948, and you see a pretty big drop in his production that year. He did bounce back in 1949 and have another good year that was good enough for him to be, I believe it was first team on the all, all uh, on the All-America Conference uh, All-League team. And... Um, 
from there on, well, for one thing, you know, when you get to 1950, after the All-America Conference kind of is absorbed into the NFL, you go from a peak for a couple of years where there were 18 pro teams to 13 in 1950 and then eventually 12 in 1951. So it's a much more competitive situation as well. And if you look at the careers of any number of players, their production didn't stay as high as it had been before 1950 in either league. Mm -hmm. Now, with other guys, it was different. And a lot of this all depends on was the guy on the upside of his career, the downside of his career, was he at his best, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think, you know, we there's plenty of reasons, and we shouldn't leave out the fact that I, I would not certainly go so far as to say that his pro career was a little bit of a disappointment, but um, it, it wouldn't it wasn't, be unfair. It wasn't what to, it could be. It wasn't what it, maybe people expected it to be. Based on what he had done, yes, right, yeah. You know, Andy, whenever you talk about African-American athletes, especially those who played decades ago, it would be unjust if the topic of inequality and racism and prejudice wasn't brought up, especially, what you know, in today's environment. So I, I do have a couple of questions for you here. And we're Can gonna... I interrupt you just for a second there, sure, Warren? Sure. No, because it's absolutely essential that we get into that, because it is a big part of this era, and it's a big part of Buddy Young's story. Mm -hmm. What I will say, just to cap off sort of his Illinois and the whole track piece of his life and career, mm -hmm. we are left to wonder if his circumstances had been different whether he might have been someone who would have been competing in the 1948 Summer Olympics. Interesting. Because as you mentioned, he was a record setter in certain track sprinting categories, and he was the national collegiate champion in two others. Unlike what has been the case for, I don't know, the last 20, 30 years, I'm not sure exactly when they changed the rules, but anybody who was a professional in any sport was not eligible to participate in the Olympics, That's even right. in a sport, even in a sport other than the one that they were a professional in. Yep. So as soon as he decided in 1947 to play pro football, as, as, instead of continuing with his collegiate days, he, you know, that ended any possibility that he would, could have been an Olympian. Mm -hmm. And I guess there were, aside from, you know, probably what was for the time a pretty good salary. The, he was married at some point while he was in Illinois, and I believe already had his first child at the time that he signed with the New York Yankees in 1947. So economics so, did play a role in that. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, I don't have in front of me inf any information about who the medal winners were at the 1948 Olympics in the events that he participated in at Illinois, but more than likely there were probably people he ran against and conceivably beat in races. Mm -hmm. So then you take that to the international level, who knows? But certainly it's it's easy to imagine that he would have been a viable Olympic candidate and a contender for a medal or two. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, getting back to the point that you started to ask yeah, me about. I, I, th th let's let's start it with this. 
do you know if he ever faced any racism while he was in college? I would imagine absolutely. Um, there were apparently some black players at Illinois from the early part of the 20th century, but there had not been one for many years until he played for them in uh, 1944. And so going on the road or even in Illinois itself uh, at that time, uh, he undoubtedly faced any kind of uh, abuse or foul language or having to stay in a hotel separate from where the team played. Now, Buddy Young died in the early 1980s. About 15 years ago, I began interviewing black players who were contemporaries of his that turned out to be a book called Gridiron Gauntlet. Mm -hmm. And a number of them, uh, I mentioned Sherman Howard at the early part of the interview. Yep, He was a year or a year and a half older than Buddy Young, but grew up in the same Chicago neighborhood, went to the same high school and was a teammate on the football team there. He went on to have a decent pro career, and he talked about, you know, as did a number of the, uh, pretty much every other of the individuals who I interviewed for this book, including uh, another one, George Talaferro, who also played against Buddy Young. He had grown up in Gary, Indiana, which was close enough to Chicago so that they played Phillips High School when Talaferro was in high school in Gary. Yeah, and I've and done a podcast. On... I, I've actually uh, done a podcast on George. Uh, what a terrific ball player he was. Yeah, and a great guy who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. But uh, he was a star at Indiana and then uh, in the pros and for uh, several years was a teammate of both Buddy Young and Sherman Howard. So just think about the fact that you have these years where there's no black players in pro football and then all of a sudden these three guys who pass at all crossed as high schoolers and even younger – playing pro ball and in the same backfield for the same team at the same time. It's pretty amazing, really. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so, I mean, I I can, we can just sort of draw some, I think, pretty obvious conclusions about problems that he would have faced. Now, the Big Ten did play primarily or exclusively a local schedule, so they were not, Go well. They would not even have been allowed to have played in the deep south, sure, um, or a place like Texas. So maybe the most egregious abuse or restrictions that blacks were facing at time at that time he didn't face. But I do know that there were problems um, in Baltimore when he was a pro. Yeah, his first every game, his first every game in Baltimore as a member of the Yankees, fans showed up in blackface. There were protests. How did he handle that? Do you know? How did he handle those prejudices? Because I got an interesting question to follow that up with, um, you know, about what how how he behaved later on. Well, you can, we can only imagine that he, you know, you really kind of just had to bite the bullet. And as Branch Rickey told Jackie Robinson, you know, in the beginning, you really, in order to make this succeed, should not fight back. I'm sure he had many, many instincts 
to fight back or go take a swing at somebody or get into it, whatever, any other way. But he, you know, I'm sure being a terrific athlete probably also used it as motivation for himself on the field. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the best ways that he could hit back at this uh, ignorance was to help the Yankees uh, do a number on the Colts on the field. It was also common practice in Baltimore, which at that time really still, I don't I wouldn't say now, but at that time was still really considered to be a Southern city because uh, most of the major hotels were off limits to blacks. Mm-hmm. So as we've heard about any number of black athletes from that era, either Buddy Young would have had to gone to a so-called black owned hotel in the black part of town or he would have had to stay with the family of a black uh, at the home of a black family that offered usually from, you know, a professional like mm-hmm. a doctor or somebody with some standing in the community and go stay with such a family anytime that the team traveled to Baltimore. Mm-hmm. What I find really interesting is here's this guy. He's a terrific football player. African-American, he faces, you know, these prejudices back in the day. And then there's the great Lenny Moore, who spoke about Buddy in his book, All Things Being Equal. And Lenny didn't paint a very nice picture of Buddy as far as Buddy treating fellow black athletes after Buddy had left the game and became an executive in football. What gives? What happened? Well, it's not exactly clear. And although I read Lenny Moore's book at the time that it came out, which I'm not sure, it's uh, at least five and maybe ten years ago, and I found it to be a terrific read. And again, for younger people, Lenny Moore was one of the all-time greats. He played for the Colts beginning in the mid-1950s up until 1967. And I think it's really an understatement of how good he was just to simply say he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame because he, too, to some extent, is often overlooked and even forgotten or unknown. But he was absolutely an elite player. Um, So we should, first of all, start with that. Mm -hmm. But he also... His career is starting right at the time that Buddy Young's career is ending. And in some sense, it could be that it could be said that Lenny Moore took Buddy Young's job because Buddy Young was not yet ready to retire at that point. But at some point, either the general manager or Weeb Eubank, the head coach, came to Buddy Young and said, we're going to be keeping this guy, Lenny Moore. He's going to be playing halfback and we're going to be cutting you or finding a a way to make a trade. Hmm. So, and I think they basically kind of made up for it by offering him a position working for the Colts Ah. because, you know, Buddy Young was pretty well established, even though he only played a few years, I think it was three years in Baltimore for the Colts. He did end up staying there for the next, for a total of about 15 years. And, you know, in the sizable black community in Baltimore, he was the man at that time because he, along with George Talaferro, who I mentioned earlier, 
were the two first black players to play for the Colts. And so that was a big breakthrough, especially, as I said, because Baltimore in many ways was a southern city. If you think about the fact it would be another almost decade before the Washington team signed their first black player. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, their owner, their owner, you know, George, yeah, well, that George was Preston Marshall, of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he had his own particular ignorance yeah. that caused that whole problem. But, yeah, so, I mean, in summary, Lenny Moore's claim in his book was that Buddy Young did a lot of things to basically sabotage his career. He badmouthed him to people around town, especially blacks. He appeared to be resentful about the fact that his career ended what he considered a little prematurely because Lenny Moore had come along and taken his job. Moore wrote about how even when he was retired and trying to catch on as a announcer with CBS, which he did do for one year, Buddy Young was telling whoever the powers that be both in the NFL and apparently at CBS that um, he was no good, that black viewers didn't like him and that um, he should not be kept on, which he wasn't. Now, it's important to say that I've done some research about this. I have not really been able to find others who are corroborating what Lenny Moore wrote. He quotes other people like Jackie Robinson and Monty Irvin as warning him that that Buddy Young had this kind of backstabbing element uh, in his personality. But I, you know, have not ever seen any quotes or read anything by either of those people or anyone else that supports what Lenny Moore is saying. But I, you know, I mean, I certainly it must fit with what Lenny Moore experienced and what he heard and what he believes. So I definitely take it seriously. And uh, it does not speak very well for Buddy Young. No, and he probably took out his frustration on the wrong person. He took it out on Lenny Moore when he should have probably taken it out, if he had a right to, on Weeb Eubank or whomever uh, the personnel directors were for the Colts at that time who made those decisions to push Buddy to the side and allow, um, you know, uh, Lenny to to take his position. Yeah, I mean, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's extremely difficult when you've been an elite athlete and careers are not long the way they are in, you know, the industrial world or, or a professional world or wherever. So here he was. Yeah, he was only, you know, he, he, Andy, he was only 29 years old at the time and he was coming off his first Pro Bowl season. Right. Yeah. So there may have been some machinations at the upper level of the Colts because if you talk to any black player from that era, they do say there were definite quotas in terms of how many black players would be on a roster in any given season on any given team. Mm -hmm. So if they saw that Lenny Moore had elite potential on for the next decade or whatever, and decided to keep him because he was younger and potentially could be, you know, part of the team going forward. Just by definition, with that quota system, that would have meant whoever was there who was black had to go. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. 
Now, I'd also like to just jump back because there are a couple other things that I think I don't know how much time we have left, but we could talk. We very, could talk as long as you want, Andy. Well, this is another thing from the late '40s that I think is very important to bring out and is underreported or underwritten about, and goes back again. I think both to the shortchanging of the All America Football Conference, but also the just the fact that. Groups like Sabre and baseball history as a whole is kind of much better documented than what you see with pro football. Mm -hmm. But that first year that Buddy Young played for the Yankees in 1947, there was a tremendous impact immediately in attendance. Yeah, I was going to ask you about uh, that. Well, I did some research reading newspapers of the time, both mainstream Papers and also black-owned, black-oriented newspapers that existed in pretty much every major city in the country. And it's pretty clear that the fact that Buddy Young was playing on the Yankees and that Marion Motley, Bill Willis, and Horace Gillen were playing for the Browns drew a significant number of African Americans to their games And I think it's probably safe to assume that these were folks who probably had never been to a pro football game before. Because keep in mind that there were no blacks in pro football for a period of 13 years until just the year before in 1946. And that Buddy Young was the first black player to play professionally in the city of New York. Yeah. And saying that, keep in mind that there were a number of other franchises besides the New York Giants who had played in the city of New York prior to 1947. So mm-hmm. we're talking about four or five different teams over a period of 25 years or whatever. And he was the first black player to play pro football in New York. But just, you know, check this out here in his very first month of playing for the Yankees, the Yankees draw. Uh, crowds at two games that become the two largest crowds in pro football history to that point. Wow. Yeah. 82,000 plus at the LA Coliseum for a game against the LA franchise in the all America conference. And then just two weeks later, I think it was 80,000 plus at the municipal stadium in Cleveland. And no pro football game prior to that had reached the 80,000 mark. Then you go a little deeper. Now, Yankee Stadium was not as large as either Municipal Stadium or the L.A. Coliseum. But the Browns and Yankees ended up playing three times in 1947, twice in the regular season, and then for the league championship in a game played in Yankee Stadium. So the the regular season game is 70,000 plus in Yankee Stadium and then the championship game several months later in December is 62,000. So I think the same thing applies again here that you had first of all just the overall excitement that he added to the team with his skills plus you know, black people now being able to see a black player who was an elite player that had not been true for the previous 12 or 13 years. Um, so it's just really something 
to see these two teams playing three games with a total of whatever it was, 212,000 total people for the three games. It's just attendance in pro football like had never been seen before, to be sure. honest. Sure, yeah, it had finally arrived, and I think – like you said, it definitely had something to do with the presence of these phenomenal athletes who just so happened to be African-Americans, and that opened up an entirely uh, uh, new avenue for entertainment for, you know, African-Americans to go out and see these great athletes play a terrific game. Yeah, exactly. And... I guess there's both a positive and a negative to what I'm going to say, but I think people who have examined the history of blacks in pro baseball or pro football or basketball in this time period that we're talking about, on the one hand, you had these elite players, including guys like Marion Motley and Bill Willis, and then a couple years later, Lenny Ford, plus Joe Perry, who played for the San Francisco 49ers at this time, who are widely recognized as among the best ever. All four of those guys who I just mentioned are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So, you know, all of a sudden there's this source of talent that has been ignored coming in, granted in criminally small numbers at first, but... Part of the the downside is, in addition to you having now people being able to see these great players, unfortunately, when it came to, say, like second string players or second tier players who may have been starters but not stars, you, you don't really see black players. Mm-hmm. If there's a kind of race for the final roster spots among player number 30 or 32 or 33 or whatever it might have been, overwhelmingly the decision was made that those players should be white. And only blacks who were good enough to be at least starters and preferably stars were kept on rosters. So we can only imagine, you know, I don't want to use the word marginal, but black players who maybe who had not say, reach their peak yet, or who in a completely fair situation should have made a pro roster, ended up getting cut or released simply because... Of the color of their skin. Yeah, the mentality of the time was that, okay, we'll keep you if you're a star, but we won't keep you if you're only good enough to be second string or something like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we know why... He went to the AAFC instead of the NFL at that time. Um, You know, he played for the Yankees and the Yanks from 47 through 51. And between those two teams during that period, he rushed for almost 2,000 yards and scored 11 touchdowns through the air. He caught more than 100 passes. I think it was 106 passes for just over 1,500 yards. And he scored another 12 touchdowns. Then he left the Yanks and went south to play for the Dallas Texans of the NFL. Yes, there was a team in Dallas before the Cowboys and the Texans of the AFL. After his one year with the Texans, he moved on to the Colts. For Baltimore, 
Buddy enjoyed some pretty good success, his best year coming in 1954, his last year when he was named to the Pro Bowl. But he only played those three years for the Colts, as we had just discussed. Um, What can you tell us about his career with the Colts? Are there any specific highlights? How good was he with them? Or was it a disappointment? Was his career with Baltimore a disappointment? Uh, well, just to clarify, his last year was 55. 55, I'm sorry, nine, I misspoke. Right. Yeah, nine complete years. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say. He was certainly still a threat. I think as his career progressed and maybe more so as he got to the end of his career, he was more of a threat as a kick returner. Um, I think his carries and maybe the number of plays that he was playing kind of went down little by little as his career progressed. But, um, you know, he was still a dangerous player and still, as you mentioned, good enough to be named to the Pro Bowl that one year. And then posting, even as late as uh, one year that he was playing for the Colts, uh, really hot big-time kick return average. You know, because you can just imagine he's – the fastest guy around, why wouldn't you have him be a punt returner and a sure. kickoff returner? Yeah, so he was, and he combined that with being a running back, and as he mentioned earlier, a guy who was a very effective receiver coming out of the backfield. So he, I'm just trying to look at my notes here, but he had a yard average per kickoff in 1953 when he was with the Colts. And he had a high of 19.3, which is a very high total for punt return. Yeah. In in one year that he played for the New York Yanks. So I I think he was just a steady, good halfback who also during this time, as I mentioned, was sharing duty in the same backfield with other guys who were pretty darn good too, like George Talaferro. Mm-hmm. Um, so, he, you know, I, I think it's not a hall of fame career. And as we said earlier, it may be that he didn't quite reach the heights that people thought after how good he was up through 1947. But we can also figure that a guy that size is probably taking a pretty good beating. Even in that era where you have football players as a whole not being as gigantic as they are now, if you're, you know, 170 pounds and regularly getting pounded by guys who are 50, 60, 70 pounds heavier than you are, (laughs) there's no question it took a toll. And I know he missed some time and didn't play as well in 1948, just his second season because of injuries. Um, So whether that was some kind of lingering thing for the rest of his career or other injuries, but it does, you know, it just makes perfect sense that um, it would have been very difficult at that size to be say Mm -hmm. like uh, the best running back in the league. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cause even a guy like I mentioned, Steve Van Buren, Joe Perry, some of his contemporaries, again, these guys are not, as big as running backs of today, 
but they were 30, 35 pounds heavier than Buddy Young, mm-hmm. and that's a mm-hmm. big deal. So, mm-hmm. And it is worth saying a little bit um, about the Daleks experience. It was only one season. It was the first major league sports team of any kind ever to play in the state of Texas. It came about because the New York Yanks team that Buddy Young had been playing for in 1950 and 51 basically went under. Mm -hmm. The owner turned the assets over to the league, and the league now needed to find a new team in order to keep 12 teams rather than dropping down to 11. So a couple of well-to-do Texans came forward and said they wanted to try to establish pro football in Dallas. It ended up being a disaster all the way around financially. The team only won one game, and again, it got turned back to the league at the end of the season. Mm -hmm. But it was, uh, again, another way in which Buddy Young and George Talaferro, who was still on the team at that point, were trailblazers because Texas was a part of the Confederacy. There was a legal segregation in force at this time in the state. And um, if anybody's ever seen or read uh, the book or the movie about Ernie Davis's experience, the Elmira Express, he played in the Cotton Bowl years later and was subject to tremendous abuse, both off the field and on the field. And so now here it was 1952, some eight years earlier, mm-hmm. we can just imagine the kind of things that Buddy Young and George Talaferro had to go through that year. But uh, they did it, and it was a big step forward, both, I think, for pro football and, I'm sure, for the city of Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, more power to them for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Over- and then in yeah. 1953, becoming the first black players ever to play in Baltimore. Yeah, because basically the assets of the Texans were turned over now to the new Baltimore franchise that started in 1953. So he's, you know, whatever. In addition to all the stuff that he did as a player on the field, he's also leading the way in important ways for pro football and sports as a whole. Sure, a trailblazer. uh, even after his career was over, he was a trailblazer, you know, working in the front office for the Colts and later for the league. I just wanted to say, you know, overall for his career, he averaged four, over four and a half yards a carry, his high coming in 1949 when he averaged 6.5 yards a carry. And as a receiver, he averaged 15.1 yards per reception, his high coming in 1955, his last year, when he averaged 22.4 yards per reception. Those are really staggering numbers. And I I can't, I I, I just can't help but think he's 29 and his career is over. Why didn't he try to latch on with another team? Or was he just at that point too beat up? That would be my speculation. Uh, and, he, you know, uh, post-football careers or pro-baseball careers were not necessarily a sure thing. So when he got the chance via an offer from the Colts to take a job in their front office, it it made 
I'm sure good sense to him, despite whatever frustration or disappointment he felt about being told that his career was basically over. So, and he made the best of it. He was there for, I think it was 12 years in the front office. And Mm -hmm. the troubling stuff about Lenny Moore notwithstanding, apparently was a a pretty well-respected guy. Um, Enough so that he eventually, like you said, ended up going to work for the NFL for the last 25 years, I guess it was, of his life. Mm -hmm. You know what else is really interesting, Andy, is that he only played for the Colts for three years, and his number 22 was the first number the Colts ever retired. And I just find that really interesting that a three-year career was deserved deserved of your number being retired is do you do you know anything about that I would assume that it's a combination both of the fact that he was a good player he was the first black player or one of the two first black players to play in Baltimore to play for the Colts and because of a service in the front office now, I've not been able to pinpoint exactly what year it was that his number was retired, but mm-hmm. perhaps it was also because of his long period of time working for the NFL as well. I think it, it, we, when you think about it, the first black player ever to play pro football in New York City, the first black player ever to play pro football, one of two in the city of Dallas or in the state of Texas or anywhere below the Mason-Dixon line, and then the first black player, again, one of two ever to play in Baltimore. Keeping in mind also that at that point, there was no major league baseball team in Baltimore. There had been a Baltimore Orioles team way back at the turn of the century, but it would be a couple more years, or it was right during the time, I guess, when Buddy Young was playing that the, uh, St. Louis franchise moved to Baltimore and became the Baltimore Orioles that we know today. And obviously, it was many years to go before there would be any pro baseball team in Texas. So, you know, all this stuff, not only is he breaking ground as far as pro football, he's breaking ground as far as major league sports as a whole, too. Definitely worthy of of the honor he received and just recently received another honor, not a very publicized honor, but to members of the Professional Football Researchers Association, guys like you and I, a very nice honor where he was named to the Hall of Very Good. And for many football players, that is actually an entree into eventually uh, making it into Canton as a Hall of Famer, not saying that uh, Buddy will ever do that. Andy, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. It's been a wonderful hour, and uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Warren, for having me. It was a pleasure. For his career, which spanned a total of nine years combined in the AAFC and the NFL, Buddy Young rushed the ball 597 times for 2,727 yards. That breaks down to an average of 4.6 yards a carry. He scored 17 times. Through the air, 
He caught 179 passes for another 2,711 yards for an average of 15.1 yards per reception, and he scored 21 touchdowns. Over the course of his career, he returned two punts for touchdowns and four kickoffs for touchdowns, including a long of 104 yards. The stain on his career is his relationship with other minority players as an executive, and that's really a shame, especially when you consider the hurdles he cleared when he was trying to make it. Nonetheless, Buddy Young did enjoy a wonderful career as a player, and there have been so few who have exhibited the kind of speed he did. I'd like to thank my guest today, Andy Piasek, for stopping by. Andy is a member of the Professional Football Researchers Association, as am I, and I encourage all of you listening who are also fans of football, especially football history, to check out the site, profootballresearchers.org. It's a wonderful site with so much historical information, and you can join as well. That's profootballresearchers.org. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to look back at the career of a terrific sports writer. That's right. We are going to go away from the field to talk about a guy who covered the game's we love to watch, but made a much larger statement and impact on the game as well. Truly a wonderful tribute to a great writer, Jerry Eisenberg, who should be much better known. And I promise you will enjoy this conversation with Ed Odovin, who just recently released a new book, Going 15 Rounds with jerry eisenberg that's next time for now thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on sports forgotten heroes